Is, is that most of you do not, as you can see from the response, that, that my guess is right. We live in a culture that doesn't like to wait, and as a result has developed and, and continues to develop technology reflecting, and I would argue, feeding this value. We are an impatient people. There's a book I want to read or a movie I want to watch, I can have access to it instantaneously. If I'm behind on my Christmas shopping, it's not a problem. Amazon has two days, sometimes even one day shipping. I no longer have to wait days or weeks or even months to hear the news. I can, I can see an event going on in China live on a device that fits in my pocket. I'm not saying these are inherently bad things. I, I, like I'm sure most of you, love Chick-fil-A, a delicious fried chicken sandwich with a smile and a, and a mind pleasure is, is amazing. Who, who would not love that? But I am saying that we should seriously think about and, and consider both how these advancements reflect the values in our culture and also how they are shaping us. Do we, both as a culture and more particularly as a church, do we know how to wait? Today, we are gonna talk about two faithful old saints who did, Simeon and Anna. The Christian life, in fact, is a life defined in many ways by waiting. And thus, these two old saints serve as a model for us as we seek to live faithfully in our own Christian lives. So, with this in mind, go ahead and, and turn to our passage today, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. So again, it's Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. We will um, look at Simeon first, um, and, then we're, and then we'll talk more briefly about Anna. Um, and as we, as we look at Simeon's life, I have three points of application. Um, but before we get into those points, we need, to, we need to set the context. We need to set the stage. So, so uh, look with me just at verses 22 to 24. <clears throat> and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that is, Mary and Joseph, brought him, that is Jesus, baby Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, 
pair of turtle doves with two young pigeons. In these verses, as I've already said, the stage is being set for Simeon's encounter with Jesus. His parents, Mary and Joseph, have taken Jesus to Jerusalem for, for three traditional post-birth Jewish ceremonies. Mary's purification, and Jesus' presentation, and dedication. Without getting into the details of these ceremonies, let me just note briefly two things here that I, that I want you to observe. First, observe that his parents are poor. We know this because Mary takes two turtle doves instead of a lamb and a turtle dove to be sacrificed for her purification as, as a wealthier member of Jewish society might do after um, they just gave birth. Keep this in mind. I won't elaborate on this here, but keep this in mind um, as Simeon, as we read about Simeon meeting Jesus. The second point of observation is that his parents, Mary and Joseph, are pious. They're pious Jews. Luke makes it very clear in these verses and also elsewhere throughout this birth narrative that they are being obedient to the law of Moses and having these ceremonies performed. By emphasizing this, Luke is communicating to his readers, especially his, his Jewish ones, that Jesus really is the long-awaited Messiah. And, and one piece of evidence of this is that, that he's coming from a family of, of true Israelites, faithful to the law and the prophets. Next, we are introduced Simeon. So let's let's read on to verses starting in verse 24. Sorry, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It's only in Luke that we know anything about this man named Simeon. So what, is, what does Luke say about him? Who is Simeon? First, we learn according to these verses that Simeon is in Jerusalem. It's, it's not clear precisely why. We're, we're not actually sure. You, you might assume that he's a priest, but we're not, we're not actually sure about that. He, he may be a priest, but we don't really know. What we do know is that he's there by divine appointment. God's sovereignty. Next, Luke characterizes this man, Simeon, in three ways. First, we're told that he's righteous and devout. Just like Mary and Joseph, this man is committed to obeying the law of Moses. He's part of the faithful remnant of Israel. He's a true, a true Israelite. Second, and most significant to our theme today, we learn that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean, to, to wait for the consolation of Israel? Our, our English word, to wait, I don't think adequately captures what Simeon is doing here. We use the word to wait in all kinds of circumstances. Simeon's not waiting like a child waits for the school bus, begrudgingly in the morning, or... or in the, way a, um, in the way you might wait in the line at a grocery store, for example. That's not 
how Simeon is waiting. Rather, he, he's waiting like a child waits for his birthday, or for Christmas morning, or like a groom waits for the sanctuary doors to open and to see his bride um, revealed. That's the way Simeon, and as we'll see later, Anna is waiting. He's eagerly looking forward to something. This is why the, the New Living Translation, which is um, just a different translation than what I'm using here, uh, translates this word, I think, correctly with the adjective eagerly. Simeon is eagerly waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's not just waiting, it's something, something that he's doing eagerly. And, and this, I would argue, defined and shaped the way he's living, and I'll come to that more. And what is this thing that Simeon is waiting for? The consolation of Israel. Synonym for the word consolation is comfort. To console someone is to comfort them. If you were a Jew reading this in the first century, you would know that Luke here is alluding to Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. In chapter 39, God has just prophesied through Isaiah that the people of Israel will be carried into exile in Babylon. But after this word of judgment for their idolatry, God gives them, again through Isaiah, a word of hope. Listen to the words of, of Isaiah 41 through 2, the opening words of this lengthy section of scripture. God says to his people, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And in addition to the comfort and peace and pardon promised here, uh, we also have even greater promises than this. Uh, God also promises a restoration of the land of Israel to the exiles and a recreation of that land into Eden-like conditions. He promises that justice and righteousness will be established in it and that his glory will pervade this land like the light of the sun. How will this all come about? It's going to come about through his servant, whom he delights in. In other words, it's going to come about through the Messiah. That's how all of these promises are going to be fulfilled. It's going to come about through the consolation of Israel. Eight centuries, however, have now passed since these words of comfort were uttered by the prophet Isaiah. And they have not been fulfilled, at least not in their fullness. Yes, God's people have, have returned to the land of Israel as he promised. They live in it under the dominion of an idolatrous and corrupt empire, Rome. Peace, justice, and God's glory do not pervade the land. But in spite of this, we read that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He, unlike many of his Israelite brothers and sisters, has not lost hope in God. He believes that his God can and will fulfill his promises even into his old age. Third, and I'll be more briefly brief here, um, Simeon is characterized as a, a man upon whom the Holy Spirit 
was upon, or the Holy Spirit was upon him, and that this very Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah, the thing that he's so eagerly waiting for. Simeon, therefore, I think you should hopefully be able to see this, stands in the long line of Old Testament prophets. He's been given a special anointing from the Holy Spirit, special revelation from that Holy Spirit, and a special role to play in preparing the way for the Messiah. While the prophets before him declare that the Messiah will come, Simeon is going to declare to the Messiah's parents that the Messiah has come. And what an unbelievable and extraordinary opportunity this would be. But we shouldn't, as we might be tempted to, let Simeon's prophetic role in giving the gulf between his calling and our calling. Simeon, like the prophets before him, was still a man. We can learn how to better live our Christian lives from his example. So, with all this being said, let's, let's look at our first point of application, which we actually find in the verses that we just looked at. So, point of application number one, waiting for the Lord shapes the way we live today. Life marked by eagerly waiting for the Lord as Simeon's life was, inherently a spirit-filled, righteous, and devout life. We see that connection. The way he lived his life was shaped by his deepest longing. To see the Messiah come and make things right in the world. What does this look like in our lives? How does waiting for the Lord actually result in a righteous, spirit-empowered life? How does, for example, waiting for the Lord help us to obey our Lord's command to turn the other cheek? Look at, uh, at Psalm 37, 1 through 4, um, and then I'll skip to, eight, to verses 8 through 9. In this psalm, David writes, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass withered like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and be good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. So, so why, according to this psalm, do you not fret yourself because of evildoers? Because our God is righteous and just. He loves his people and will deal with the wicked who slap your face in his own time and his own way. This knowledge is what will give us the strength to dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. In other words, to stay near to God and his people and to keep doing the things that God has for you to do while you still have breath. There is an impatience in our hearts to want to deal with injustice when we see it, especially when it happens to our 
ourselves. David says that this tends only evil. It's better, far better, to wait for the Lord. And, and, and I just want to make one, one further point, at least one further point more explicit here, um, is, that, is that whether or not we are able to wait for the Lord has to do ultimately with, with who we think God is. Is He a good and loving and caring and kind father or is he cold and distant and uncaring if you think he is the latter if you think he is cold and distant and uncaring then you are going to inevitably retaliate to injustice in a disobedient way but if you think he is the former as scripture throughout testifies then that will supply you with the strength you need Wait for him to act while in the meantime you affirm faithfulness. I imagine Simeon living in a time period where, where injustice reigns and corrupt rulers and leaders took great comfort in this psalm. He served a God who knew and cared about injustice and promised that one day he might set things straight. It should give us comfort too as we wait for the Lord in our own day is also filled with injustice and corruption. Point of application number two. Waiting for the Lord requires discipline. So to look at a, a verse, I'm just going to read the first part of verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, he being Simeon. So Simeon was, was going to the temple, and we are told that he was in the spirit. In the spirit, what does that mean? Be in the spirit. Well, I think there's there's a there's a sense in which if you are a Christian, you are in the spirit. But I also think there's an experiential aspect to this as well. Right? We can be more or less keeping in step with the spirit in our lives. So, a question then from this is: Your experience of the Christian life does that just happen? Do you ever simply roll out of bed in the spirit? I'm willing to bet that most of the time you do not. Instead, you have a tendency to, to wake up with worldly and fleshly thoughts. Thoughts like, I will be nice once I get my coffee. <laughs> or, how can I avoid that person at work today or at church today that annoys me? Or, I wish my wife would just clean up after herself for once. <laughs> This is something that he had to work at. Or, as Paul would say in Philippians 2, verse 12, to work out. Even though he is a prophetic figure, okay? So just, just know that he, he was still a man. He likely, just like his Lord would do one day, woke up very early that very morning to spend time with his Heavenly Father in prayer and meditation. Scripture. He spent time reminding himself of the truth of who God is and what God has promised, and then pray those truths back to God. And we can assume this was something that he did day after day after day, allowing God's promises to so deeply into him and to govern the way that he lived. 
sort of taking discipline, God-centered resolution, things our culture and our church sorely lack. Our resolutions instead tend to be worldly. Listen to the top five resolutions from New Year's Day 2021, just a year ago. Number one, doing more exercise or improving my fitness. Number two, losing weight. Number three, saving more money. Number four, improving my diet. Number five, pursuing career ambition. Now, are, are any of these in and of themselves bad resolutions? Uh, of course not. These are, these are worthy goals to pursue. But being the top five resolutions in our culture, um, what, is it, what does it say about our culture? Do these resolutions reflect a culture and a church that is waiting for the Lord? Uh, and I would argue, no. Instead, it reflects a culture that is obsessed with this world, things of this world, things that are going to ultimately one day burn up and fade. It reflects a culture that is obsessed with self and self-help. Being the best person you can be without any regard for God's glory and the good of others. Contrast this now with the resolutions of a young Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is perhaps the, the, the greatest pastor slash theologian the American continent has ever produced. But before Jonathan Edwards became Jonathan Edwards, he wrote down in his journal a list of 70 resolutions as a 19-year-old in 1722. <coughs> Let me give you just a sample. Resolution number one. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good Resolution number nine. Resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. How, how often do you think about your own death? Resolution number 16. Resolve never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account except for some real good. Resolution number 28. Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently and that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of them. And uh, one more, resolution number 67. Resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. When was the last time you resolved yourself to suffer well? These are the resolutions of a man whose heart was set on heaven, who was like singing, waiting for the Lord. Of course, resolutions like this can devolve into legalism and moralism, but that's not Edward's heart. Let me just read, this is the way he begins his resolutions, with this preamble. He says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will. For Christ's sake, Edwards knew that it was 
only by God's grace that he accomplished anything in his life. But he also knew, as Dallas Willard aptly put it, if he does nothing, if he resolves himself to do nothing, it will most assuredly be without God. So my encouragement to you then as we approach the new year is to think deeply about the resolutions you make, to make resolutions that reflect the heart and waiting for the Lord. Point of application number three. Waiting for the Lord enables us to recognize Jesus for who he really is. I'll say that one more time. Waiting for the Lord enables us to recognize Jesus for who he really is. I'm going to read um, starting in the second half of 27b down to 35. <clears throat> and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So we come to the moment that Simeon has spent his entire life waiting for. His life, in fact, as we've already said, has been centered around this moment. When he finally sees and picks up baby Jesus, he says, Really, Lord, this is your Messiah? Help us, baby. Baby, if you'll recall from a poor Galilean family. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say that. It's not what he says. You were paying attention, hopefully. Yeah, you're awake now. He does not say that. He, instead, he, he praises God and in no uncertain terms identifies Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, not just of the Jews, but the Savior of the world, of Jews and Gentiles, a statement that causes Mary and Joseph to marvel. Simeon's response to Jesus places him in sharp contrast to Zechariah, as we looked at weeks, weeks ago. Zechariah, if you'll recall, when, so to speak, his moment of truth came, doubted the words of the angel. And while God redeemed Zechariah's response and has still preached, he, he, he redeems our doubtful thoughts as well. Um, we obviously don't want to be like Zechariah. Right? We want to be like Simeon in our response to Jesus. Waiting for the Lord and ready for him when he appears. Heeding the words of our Lord in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 36. Here, Jesus commands regarding his second coming, and I should make clear, that's what we as Christians are waiting for, are waiting for Jesus' return. He says, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open to him at 
once when he comes and knocks. But there's something else that's vital to see here. Simeon saw in Jesus what almost no one else throughout Jesus' birthday ministry would see. Yes, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Messiah sent to deliver God's people from their enemies. And we should take heart in that reality. But Simeon also knew that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who, we read starting in verse 2, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried out sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Simeon knew that this little one's path, this little one that he hold, held in his hands at that very moment, was the path of the cross, the path of suffering and grief. And he must have known that he knew this passage, which he certainly did, that it was his sins and his transgressions that would put Jesus on that path. This is precisely why Simeon says that Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He's a stumbling block to the Jews, but salvation to those who believe in him. Why? Why specifically is he a stumbling block? Because the only way to come to Jesus is to admit to yourself and to God that it is your transgressions that pierced him, your iniquities that crushed him, your sins that put him on the cross. Something so many of us are tragically unwilling to do. Yes, Jesus has come to deliver God's people from their enemies. The greatest of those enemies resides in our own hearts. Simeon knew that. Do you? Alright. More briefly, we'll, we'll look at Anna's and consider Anna's response to Jesus. I just have two points of application here. So, the first point, waiting for the Lord allows us to suffer with faithfulness. So, Continuing on, uh, verse, starting verse 36 to verse 37. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineol, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So clearly there are some parallels between Simeon, who we just read about, and Anna. Both seem to have a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. Anna is a, is a prophetess. Both are faithful Jews. Both are very old. Both seem to spend a lot of time hanging out around the temple. 
both are waiting for the consolation of Israel, or as, as Luke puts in verse 38, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, which is basically the same idea. But we know something about Anna that Luke doesn't tell us about Simeon. Anna had lived a life of suffering. How do we know this? She's a widow, and she's lived as a widow for a long time, for a very long time. Seven years into her young young marriage, her husband died almost certainly before this time. And in addition to losing a loved one, and in fact, because of this, because she lost her loved one, she, she likely lived a life of extreme financial hardship as well. We don't know that, but the reasonably assume that. In short, Anna knows what it means to suffer. And how she responded to this suffering by, you can guess it, by waiting for the Lord. By dwelling in the land and befriending faithfulness. She worships God at the temple with prayer and fasting night and day. And where did she find the strength to do that? from the promises of God from the promises of scripture promises like Isaiah 61 I won't read the whole thing but um, begins with the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the broken hearted skipping down a little bit to comfort all who mourn these words Jesus himself will testify are about Jesus. It would have been a tremendous comfort and she's suffering. This is a good reminder for us, especially for those of us in here who are suffering, who are going through real hardship, that our strength to live faithfully must be grounded in the promises of God. That's not to say that knowing a few Bible verses that seem to particularly to your situation will magically make your suffering easier. That's not what I'm saying. But it is to say that you have to start there. That if you want to find any lasting peace and hope and comfort on this side of heaven in the midst of your suffering, then you have to go to God's promises. Alright, point of application number two. Waiting for the Lord allows us to suffer with selflessness. Say it again. Waiting for the Lord allows us to suffer with selflessness. So let me just read the last verse. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna didn't just happen to be coming up to the temple at that very hour. She was there by appointment over here Simeon's declaration of the Messiah has come and I think this is kind of an aside but I think it's, it's worth pointing out how specifically God's providence works here in Anna's life he knows the longing and suffering part of his child he knows her longing for the Messiah and he orchestrates events such that she would overhear the announcement of his coming before she died. 
This should be greatly encouraging to those of you, again, who are experiencing suffering in your own life. Your Heavenly Father knows what you are going through, and He cares. He knows the desires of your heart, and I believe that He will find ways to comfort you, even in this life. We know for sure in the next life, but I, I believe firmly even in this life. But at the same time, when we get a glimpse of God's heart for his children, I think we also gain some a deeper insight into Anna's heart as well. Well, certainly she, as we, we just discussed, she desires an alleviation of her, her suffering and sorrow. But she's longing for more than that. She, she, she's got a, a bigger outlook on life and a bigger outlook on what the Messiah's coming means. How do we know this? We know this, I think, because she is more than likely going to die before Jesus can even walk. She's 84 years old. She's been a widow for most of her life. And she's almost certainly going to die as a widow. So why is she giving thanks to God? telling others the good news of the Messiah's coming. Because the coming of the Messiah means far more to her than her own personal salvation. His coming means the salvation of all of God's people. Her outlook on life then at its core is selfless. The Messiah's coming is certainly good news for her, but it's also good news for all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think this applies directly to our impatient and selfish hearts. We want Jesus to deal with our suffering now, today, not some undisclosed time in the future, which he promises to do. Suffering, in fact, has a tendency to, more than most things in life, bring out our selfishness and self-centeredness. When things are going well, easy to be a really good Christian in one sense. <laughs> in another sense, no, but, but in one sense at least. It's easy to consider the needs of others before your own. But when trials come, what's really in here, what's really in our hearts is revealed. And oftentimes it's, it doesn't look pretty. <laughs> so what's the solution? How do we reorient our impatient selfish hearts become patient and selfless by, like Anna, orienting our lives around God. We must, as Psalm 1 instructs, learn to meditate on God's word day and night, allowing his promises to take deep root into our hearts so that when the storms of life do come, we're ready and we're able to stand strong. We also must, as, as Hebrews 10.25 instructs, not forsake the assembly, especially when we are suffering. Not forsaking the assembly not only allows God's people to care and love for you, but it also takes your focus off yourself and allows you to, to care for the needs of others. And I think this is what it practically looks like in the church age to not depart from the temple as Anna did, right? Anna centered her life around the temple. We are to center our life around God's word and God's people, and ultimately around God's glory. If we continue to be obedient, to continue to befriend faithfulness. 
a brief word of a brief word of conclusion. Um, this Christmas, we celebrated the coming of our Lord into this world to save sinners, as we should. We celebrated as, as the hymn Silent Night goes, the, the dawn of redeeming grace. But while a, a glorious dawn, we all know that the fullness of our salvation has not come. We are still like Simeon and Anna, fundamentally waiting people. But let me encourage you, the wait will be worth it. The wait will be worth it. We, as Paul writes, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, our bodies will be redeemed and made new. Not only will our bodies be redeemed, but all of creation too. For behold, God declares to the prophet Isaiah, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. The former things shall not be remembered. Take comfort in his promise today. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we... Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the comfort, promises of your word. Father, we, we um, live this life that's filled with so much hardship and injustice in our own heart, but also in the world around us, Lord. Father, so I pray that we as the church, as Lawndale Community Church, might be waiting people whose hope is set on you and on your unshaking promises, Father. And so we uh, pray that we can go forth in that comfort and peace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank amen. you, brother. Your last point of application of suffering not leading to selfishness, but to selflessness, um, that needs to work on me uh, today. We'll need to that, so thank you. Um, thank you to Ruth also for graciously providing our meal today, where we're excited to enjoy some of mom and pop spaghetti. So uh, if you will, just thank Ruth for, for providing that. And so we'll, as we normally do, we'll kind of return the chairs to the tables. Uh, but let me give us uh, a brief benediction. Again, this is Simeon's words after he has seen Jesus. He says, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. If we have seen Jesus with the eyes of faith, we have seen the salvation that God has brought. And so let's rejoice in that and let's enjoy the meal together. Amen.